Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. This morning's reading comes from Exodus 3, verses 1 to 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we're entering week four of our journey through the book of Exodus. And last week we learned that that God saves. Well before he brings Israel up out of Egypt, he saves and has saved. And well after he brings Israel up out of Egypt, he does save even today. And we also met for the first time two important characters, really, Moses and God. Except, I don't know if you felt this, I I did. With both characters, I think we're left with more questions than we have answers at this point. So so for Moses, we learned that though he grew up in Egyptian privilege, he still very much identifies with his Hebrew roots as, as a Hebrew himself. 
his name in Egyptian meaning something like son of, and yet his name in Hebrew, as we see in the text of Exodus itself, means to draw out or, or, or drawn out. And, and the question we're asking as readers is, is he a son of Pharaoh? Is he a son of Egypt? Or is he a son of Abraham who will draw out his people from Egypt? And even when it seems like Moses has made his decision through the killing of this Egyptian, his identity still does not become immediately clear. He is rejected by his kinsmen. Who made you a prince and a judge over us, they say. And when his wife, Zipporah, first reports his existence to her father, she calls Moses an Egyptian. Who is Moses? The same questions could be asked about God. Uh, Besides one brief mention, God first appears in the story at the end of chapter 2. It's there we learn that he is a God who has seen, heard, and known the suffering of the Israelites. And so now we're left asking, well, what will God do with that knowledge? How will he apply his covenant promises? Moreover, what must Israel do to get God to do what they want? Is it safe to have this God on our side? If we side with him, they might ask, what will he do to us later? Maybe it's better to stay with the devil we know. Who is God? The questions before us this morning are very modern ones, aren't they? Who am I? Well before identity politics came to dominate our news cycle, humanity has asked, who am I in this great big world? Where do I fit? What's my purpose? Who am I? And well before the designer spirituality of our city, right? Spiritual, not religious. Humanity has asked, who is God? What's he like? Is he safe? And what does he want from me? Exodus 3, 1 to 15 invites all of us, all of us, even those who think we long ago settled on the answers to these questions, to rethink these fundamental queries, to discover in a burning bush in the wilderness that the answers are greater than we could imagine. So here's our outline, three questions. Who am I? Who is God? And what's his plan? Okay? If you have your Bible, let's look at our first question together. Who am I? And read Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, note that, and Moses led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now Moses is 80 years old at this point in the story, which is remarkable because we often forget that. He's, He's 80 years old here at the start of Exodus chapter 3. And while we don't know this for sure, we have to imagine he has some regrets in life. We know from Stephen's speech in the book of Acts that Moses, while in Egypt, was mighty in words and deeds. That's Acts 7, 22. Moses, in other words, was going places. He was on the up and up until he decided to stick up for his Hebrew brother and kill that Egyptian. His act of deliverance has led him into exile And today, we learn, has taken him from the royal court to the lowly task of shepherding. What's worse, if it could get worse, is that he's shepherding somebody else's flock. He doesn't even own his own sheep. 
He is not wealthy. He is not successful. He is decidedly average. And we can hear the internal dialogue, can't we? Who am I? Where do I belong? And it's as Moses is living his average life, doing his average job on an average Tuesday. Okay, the text doesn't say that. When something miraculous happens, he's leading his flock and suddenly, look at verse 2, the angel of the Lord said, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Note that. It's going to be really important later. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now look at this. While our text says the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses, the phrase that we find there, Malach Yahweh, is perhaps better translated, the angel who is the Lord. The angel who is the Lord. See, God, as he has done throughout Genesis, is in some limited and veiled way present in that burning bush. And this becomes abundantly clear later in our text when we read in verse 6, when it says, Moses hid his face. Why? For he was afraid to look at God. At God. Like a moth to a flame, then Moses goes to the bush. And as he gets closer, we read verse 4, When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Now, at this point in the story, especially for those of us who are familiar with the Exodus narrative, it's tempting to begin imposing on Moses and God's relationship a certain sense of familiarity, right? To to import uh, the back end of Exodus into this moment, right? But it's important to know and to be reminded that Moses, as he approaches this burning bush in the midst of the wilderness, is spiritually speaking, flying blind. Moses can see clearly something supernatural is happening here, but he does not yet know what God or gods is at work. You may have noticed this, right, early in our passage, that Moses' father-in-law is a priest, and he's not a priest of Yahweh. He's a pagan priest, the priest of Midian. And so at worst, Moses has picked up the family religion. He's bought wholesale into the paganism of his father, of his new family. At best, Moses likely has some wonky theology, some mix of Hebrew theology and pagan theology, and maybe something else he's picked up along the way. He does not know, therefore, much about the God who calls to him from the burning bush. What he would know, however, immediately, is that the God who calls to him has affection towards him, is kind towards him. Look at this, the repetition of his name. Did you see that? Moses, Moses is called a a repetition of endearment by scholars. In Moses' culture, if you want to address a friend, someone you love, someone you care about, you say their name not once, but twice. And we see now that the God who called to his beloved Abraham, 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 in Genesis 22, And the God who called to his beloved Jacob, Jacob, Jacob in Genesis 46, now calls to his beloved Moses, Moses, Moses. 
Who is Moses? Who am I? Here we begin to catch a glimpse, just a glimpse, perhaps for the very first time, that Moses and that we are loved. But it's not just that we're loved generally. Moses will see, we will see that we're loved as children, as God's family. Moses is situated immediately into a story of family, of faithful love. Look at verse 6 again. And he said, I am the God of your father. Just pause for a second. Later we'll hear in our text, Father, uh, repeated twice more. Except in those instances, it will be used in the plural, fathers. And that's the usual way this phrase comes to us in the Old Testament. I am the God of your fathers. But here we find it in the singular. I am the God of your father. And God is saying to Moses, you're not a son of Pharaoh. You're not a son of Egypt. You're a son of your father, who is the one who worshiped the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's this decisive, identity-forming moment. You do not belong to Egypt. You belong to me. We continue to read in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Should sound familiar to us in view of chapter 2. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Okay. Again, we learn that in Exodus, God sees, hears, and knows the cries of his people. Verse 7 is emphatic. I have paid very close attention, he says. I have carefully watched. As Jesus would say later in his own ministry, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That's Luke 12, verse 7. The God who sees us and hears us and knows us, loves us, and like he showed to Moses, desires to locate us in a family, his family. Twice we read in our text today, my people, my people. Twice we read in our text today, the children of Israel, the children of Israel. So imagine for a moment what Moses is experiencing. He has viewed his life up until this point at best as average, more likely as a disappointment. It's not unlike, we can think about it this way, living your life in poverty and stumbling onto a winning lottery ticket, except here the ticket doesn't just give you cold, hard cash. Here the lottery ticket gives you belonging. And as hinted at, eternal belonging. Notice that God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not past tense. In him, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob live. Jesus himself will reference this very verse in in the New Testament. And so what Moses is being invited into here is a family, a family of love for eternity. Do you see that? What Moses is experiencing is not unlike the New Testament teaching of adoption, where we discover in the gospel that God in Jesus does not just want to pardon us from our sin, but as his beloved children, 
bring us into his very family, bring us so near. The the Apostle John says it like this in 1 John 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And then John says, and so we are. J.A. Packer, the late great theologian and author, is right when he says in his book, Knowing God, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge, what the Bible calls justification, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father, adoption is greater. What kind of God would do this? What kind of God calls us to himself, not as as slaves, but as children, who says our name not with anger or disappointment, but with love, but with tenderness, with endearment? Well, we might be surprised to find out what kind of God. Come with me to our second point where we ask, who is God? Who is God? And the first hint we get at the identity of God comes almost in sharp contrast to to the endearing call of Moses. Moses, look at verse 5. Then God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's a bit cheeky, isn't it? Almost like a teasing friend. Come, come. Now go, go. Right? What's going on here? I think the key to understanding what's happening here and just who exactly God is is found in the occurrence of this word that up until this point in Scripture has never been used in reference to who God is. It's this word. Look at it. Verse 5. Holy. Holy. Earlier now, in in Genesis 2, we we read about God making the Sabbath holy or sanctified or set apart for the first time. But here, Bible readers learn as we work through the Pentateuch, these five scrolls, that God himself is holy. That that is an attribute of who God is. And just what exactly his holiness means, right, this set-apartness, this distinctness, this utter uniqueness means will be elaborated on shortly as he gives his name to Moses. But for now, it's worth noting that God is already establishing himself as distinct and different from the gods that Moses would be familiar with. He is a God who makes a place, and as we'll see, a people holy, holy, just by his presence. Just by his presence. You know, in the ancient world, uh, it worked like this. You would declare a place holy, and then you would go and you would bring your sacrifices to that place that you have declared holy, so your grain or your animals or even your people. And you would say, come over here, gods. We've made this place holy. And so come and, and feast and be sustained and nourished by these sacrifices that we've made. And not so, it seems with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. At this point in in the story, Horeb, the mountain of God, is not yet the mountain of God. It will become a place of significance because God, 
first here and then again when he gives Israel the law, chooses to appear to his people at this place. See, God says it's holy because I'm here, not because you've declared it to be so. And the difference I think we're intended to see is that God cannot be manipulated or controlled or summoned by us. He cannot be managed or received on our terms. But my wife and I have been watching this this silly show about Godzilla. And in that show, the way that you attract Godzilla, this great monster to yourself, is by emitting nuclear radiation. And then he comes a-calling, like a dog to his food. And it is not so with God. We cannot create a mood through special lighting or special music, music uh, wherein God is obliged to show up. We cannot repeat phrases or mantras or harm ourselves in such a way that compels God to appear, to manifest his presence among us. God manifests his presence when and where he'd like, and when he does, he makes that often unassuming, neglected, ignored people or place holy. And we see this tension between Moses' religious expectations and God's refusal to conform to them in what happens next. After some back and forth, Moses says to God, verse 13, Well, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses wants to know God's name. For to Moses and his contemporaries, Ian Proven, he says this, To know the name of God, or a God, then was to know where that God fitted in the cosmos, where on the map of divinity, and indeed of divinely ordained society, it might be found. It was also thereby to know of what use the divinity might be to the worshiper, which benefits might accrue from its worship. More than this, though, another scholar, Richard Bauckham, he adds, there may have even been a sense that to know a God's name was to have some power to make that God respond. Where do you fit? Moses wants to know. How do, you, how do we summon you? Moses wants to know. Listen to God's response. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So, if so far we've been traveling through Exodus at warp speed, covering a lot of ground every Sunday as we just read through these large sections, for these three verses, Exodus 3, verses 13 to 15, we're going to press pause. And we're going to slow down. What we have on the screen, what you have in your Bibles, is a a tremendously important passage, a key passage of biblical revelation where God gives his name for the first time to his people. Because, as we'll see, the, the, the question, who am I, ultimately falls flat if we can't first answer the more important question, 
of who is God. And, and notice that God discloses his name in, in three stages. First, he says, verse 14, I am who I am. Or, or maybe better still, I will be who I will be. Now, that's a strange name. None of us have kids named I will be who I will be, and perhaps that might even be blasphemy, so, so, so don't do that. But, but here's what it means. Again, I quote from Richard Bauckham. He says this about this name, I will be who I will be. Bauckham writes, We might say that God, then, is utterly self-determining. He cannot be constrained by anything other than himself. He can say who he is and who he will be only by reference to himself, not by reference to anything else. God, Bauckham says, is who he chooses to be. And here lies one of the chief differences between God and man. God is self-determining. We are not. God is not constrained, hampered, bound by anything. We are abundantly bound, abundantly limited. Abundantly constrained. God is who he chooses to be. We are who God says we are. We, we come now finally to the question, to the miracle of the burning bush. Why does God appear in this way? Well, besides the fact that in Genesis and Exodus, God often appears and will appear in fire and smoke, the uniqueness of this appearance in the burning bush is that it acts as an object lesson explaining to us the name of God and indeed the nature of God. Let me tell you what I mean. Just as the bush can burn but not be consumed, our text is very clear on that. This bush is burning but it is not consumed. So too does God's existence not require fuel or sustenance from anything outside of him, external of him. Now, we know this, and I know this because I googled it this week. A fire to be fed needs heat, fuel, and oxygen. It needs all three things for it to exist, for it to remain in existence. But this fire uniquely needs none of those things. It is entirely self-subsistence, entirely self-determining. And so Moses, having reached out for a name to tie God down with, is instead rebuffed. God will not be Israel's genie in a bottle. He will not be at their beck and call. His people will belong to him on his terms. Stop and consider that for a moment. Do you want God on your terms? Do you want him in a more palatable way that perhaps fits with the spirit of the age? Or do you want God as he has forever revealed himself to be? Because you can only receive him one way. You can only know him one way. That's as he is. Anything else is an idol. A God fashioned in your image, in my image, who appeals to our desires, our wants, our preferences. 
I will be who I will be. Hear the declarative voice of the Lord in your life this morning. I will be who I will be. I will deal with you on my terms. And on one hand, that's terrifying. And on the other hand, as we'll see next, it's good news. (laughs) Because what are his terms? Look at the second stage of God's self-disclosure. The second half of verse 14, we read, And he said, we'll say this to the people of Israel, I will be has sent me to you. So how has God decided to use his freedom, to use his divine prerogative? We see here, it says here, to love the people of Israel, to go to them, to love Moses, to love them, to bring them into his family, to bring them near. He has, God, quite independently from anything we've done, quite outside of our own loveliness, decided to be our God, decided to act for our good. Only now then, once God has set the parameters for his relationship to Israel, does he give his name. Third stage of divine disclosure, verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, notice, capitalized. And the name you see capitalized in your Bible here and throughout the Old Testament, the Lord is actually a stand-in for the divine name given to Moses. A name that's something like, we don't actually know for sure, but a name that's something like Yahweh. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And God gives his name to Moses and to Israel, not that they might now control him, not that they might now bottle him, right? Put him on a leash. No, he gives his name to Israel in order that they might appeal to him, call out to him as their God and they as his people. See, in giving Moses his name in these three successive stages, again, God is doing something. And to see what he's doing, very briefly, turn with me to our last point and ask this question, what's his plan? Now, we're going to unpack this much more next week as we continue in chapter 3 into chapter 4. But but what is God's plan in all of this? Why does God give Moses, give Israel his name, Yahweh? What does he intend to do with this divine disclosure? What does he intend for us to do as those who have been given his name? And, and, and the obvious reality must not be hastily rushed over. It's something that we've seen throughout our time this morning. In giving us his name, he intends to be with us. And for us to be with him, he, he, he's claiming us as his own. Verse 12 says, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, Moses, you shall serve God on this very mountain, as of course they do. The God who has always been with Israel will continue to be with Israel as he delivers them from Egypt and brings them to Sinai and and beyond. 
as he delivers them into the land he is preparing for them. It says in verse 8, a good and broad land. Uh, the word Egypt, Egyptian, in, in, in Hebrew means something like narrow land. And here God says, I'm bringing you into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The comfort and joy and strength of God's people, the sustenance of his people, will be his very presence. It's true then, it's true now. Our joy is the presence of God. Our hope today is that God goes with us. And in fact, if God does not go with us, then then how will people know that we're distinct? See, his presence is not just a comfort to us, it's also our purpose in this world and in this life. See, they are brought out of Egypt, again, did you see that in verse 12, to serve God on this mountain. Again, we're never saved. Here's a refrain we see over and over again in this book. We're never saved to serve ourselves or serve no one. That's impossible. Nobody serves no one. We're never saved to serve another God or our idols. God saves that we might serve him. And as we've seen today, serve him not as slaves, but as children. And so we go bearing his name to serve him in this world as his children. We do that by representing God to the nations. To ignore or disobey God's commands is to fail to represent the truth of who God is. So having been saved to serve him, one of the ways we do that is going. Going. This task given to Israel is the same task before us today. See, in the burning bush, God's self-revelation was was just partial, right? Just beginning. And throughout all of Exodus, in fact, all these divine disclosures are partial. Yes, God is revealing himself, but, but it's always hidden in some way obscured in some way. So in the wilderness, at Sinai, and even when we get to the tabernacle, right? God will appear in a dark cloud as this thick, dark cloud concealing his, his glory. In the tabernacle, there'll be thick curtains blocking off certain sections. It's always a, a hidden glory, a, a partial revelation. At, at Sinai, you might know that, that God will require his people to keep distance from him, right? He'll be at the top, where the fire is, and the dark cloud is. And as people, well, they won't even be allowed to touch the base of the mountain. There'll be distance between God and his people. But in Jesus, in the coming of Jesus, the Son of God, the Apostle Paul will say in Colossians 1.19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Having considered all who God is this morning, now hear what what Paul says. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And and don't just take it from Paul. Jesus said about himself in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and here comes the divine name, I am. Jesus will be who he will be. 
Jesus is the great I am. And we could say that Christ was that flame that burned the bush but did not consume it. And now, Christian, we bear his name. We bear his name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you in your kindness and in your mercy. You have revealed yourself to us. We see this in Exodus 3, in the burning bush. But we see this most clearly, most beautifully, in the person of Jesus, who comes to us and who reigns even now as the great I Am. Lord, would we worship you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.